when we are doing a procedure, we have to be focused on it, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know, if you uh, are loving your job or, you know, you're, there's fighting at home or, you know, the traffic was bad or, you know, you're, you're not happy with what's going on uh, where you are politically, you're unhappy with the uh, global uh, sort of issues. None of that matters, right? I mean, when you are with a patient doing a procedure, you have to be focused on doing that. And I think uh, that's a good exercise. Uh, there, there's no choice, right? We have to do it for the sake of the patient. It's just what's right and fair to them. But I think there's something to be said for bringing that type of uh, laser-like focus into other aspects of life as well. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome again to an extremely, extremely special episode of Parallax. Um, Parallax was started in 2019. And, um, you know, when we started, um, you know, little did we know that we would be recording our 50th episode. It's uh, June 2021, and we are into our 50th episode. And when I was um, having a conversation with the producers of Parallax, you know, uh, who are Ratcliffe Group Limited uh, out of uh, United Kingdom, um, we were discussing as to who should be uh, the 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 guest who can do justice to uh, to our fiftieth episode, and you know we um, could not find anyone else better to suit this pedestal, and you know he obviously was was extremely kind to accept my invitation. Is Dr. Deepak Bhatt. Uh, Dr. Bhatt, you know, uh, the name needs no introduction, is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the executive director of interventional cardiovascular programs at Brigham and Women's Heart and Vascular Center and Brigham, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and so, you know, without much further ado, Dr. Bhatt, uh, welcome on the show and thank you so, so much for doing this for us. Well, it's really great to be here with you, a real privilege and honor. Um, so Dr. Bhatt, let me, um, let me begin by, by asking you, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, we've known each other now for, I would say a little over maybe five, maybe five, six years. And, you know, we were just talking off the line and, you know, just reminiscing how I would walk over from the Bethesda Deaconess Medical Center over to Brigham and Women's Hospital to sit down with you and, you know, go over ideas on projects. And, you know, here we are now. But I've I've always looked up to you as uh, my mentor, my teacher, my guru. Uh, you know, someone I aspire to be, someone I emulate. I even actually emulate 
uh, how you organize your email signature. <laughs> um, I, I remember having sought permission from you if I could emulate that format. Um, so, you know, if, if I can only be, you know, like 1% of Deepak Bhatt, I think I would have done justice to my career. Um, but, you know, the, the, the question is, how, how do you get the time to be omnipresent? I think that that's that's my first question for you. Well, uh, thank you for the question. First of all, it really is great to have met you so many years ago. It's it's hard to believe how much time has passed. You know, it's a cliche uh, how quickly time passes, but it, it really does. And uh, it, it is wonderful to have known you all this time and to see how successful you've been both professionally and personally in everything that you've been doing, including uh, launching this whole program. Uh, really uh, a testimony to your uh, innovation and energy. But uh, in terms of being uh, omnipresent, I don't know about that being true. I, I, I do try to focus when I'm doing things on what I'm doing, but I don't know that that's a skill necessarily specific to me. I, I do think it's one that people who are uh, proceduralists uh, often do uh, develop in, in a manner of speaking, whether they're you know surgeons or or interventional cardiologist, you know, where when we are doing a procedure, we have to be focused on it, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know, if you uh, are loving your job or, you know, you're, there's fighting at home or, you know, the traffic was bad or, you know, you're, you're not happy with what's going on where you are politically, uh, you're unhappy with the global sort of issues. None of that matters, right? I mean, when you are with a patient doing a procedure, you have to be focused on doing that. And I think uh, that's a good exercise. Uh, there, there's no choice, right? We have to do it for the sake of the patient. It's just what's right and fair to them. But I think there's something to be said for bringing that type of uh, laser-like focus into other aspects of life as well. So whatever it is you're doing, that you be as focused as you are if you're stenting a left main, uh, if you are working on editing a paper, or if you are giving advice to someone, you know, that is at that moment, you've got to just think that's the only thing that's going on in the world. It's super important to the person on the other hand, on the other side. I mean, you know, even if for you, stenting a left main is routine for them, it's a matter of life or death. Uh, and likewise, you know, if you're giving advice to someone who's, you know, applying for fellowship in cardiology, it might be the hundredth or maybe thousandth time you've done it, or maybe the first or tenth. But uh, for that person, it's potentially a really critical juncture in their life. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I, I try to focus on things as I'm doing them. But um, I, again, I don't know that that's anything uh, unique about uh, me in any way, uh, though I do think there are some skills that we learn in medicine, in that case, specifically from procedural medicine, that can apply to other aspects of life. Yeah, no, excellent analogy. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's the, the practice of mindfulness and, and, and the practice of being here now you know, as they, they call it in the, in the spiritual world. And, um, you know, no better than a surgeon or an, or an interventional cardiologist or a proceduralist, like you said, uh, to sort of bring that focus and attention to every action, every interaction that you have on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you know, just uh, undivided attention and focus, you know, which are, which are crucial for success in any task that you pick up. Um, Dr. Bhatt, I, um, you know, I'm not, I don't stalk you, but, but I kind of do. <laughs> uh, and, um, 
you know, I was I was going over PubMed, uh, and I I put your name on PubMed, and I found over sixteen hundred uh, peer reviewed uh, you know manuscripts, and you know these sixteen hundred are not um, you know it, like I, I'm I'm not trying to be disrespectful to some of the journals that do not have an impact factor or have an impact factor in single digits. Um, you know, but these are New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, JAMA, um, you know, Jack, European Heart Journal, Circulation, these kinds of papers. For for someone like, you know, for 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 residents, for fellows, um, you know, for, even for medical students, uh, obviously for early career, mid-career, um, or even established, you know, cardi- uh, you know, cardiologists or interventionalists or you know, even just doctors, physicians, scientists. I mean, this is this is a broad question because 1,600 manuscripts on PubMed is, I mean, you would probably be a handful on the planet to to have that kind of number. How 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 do you do that? How do you how do you do that? And you know, having known you personally and having worked with you for so long in several manuscripts, I mean, I, I think I have over. I hope that this number grows, but I have over three dozens of manuscripts with you as a co-author, and I know that you are extremely engaged and um, extremely responsive in editing and providing feedback, critical feedback. You know, not just uh, you know, not just syntax, but you know, uh, methodology and and you look at the numbers and you look at the uh, p-values and you look at the confidence intervals and you look at the odds ratios, hazard ratios. I mean, you're very, very involved. And this is irrespective of you being uh, the final corresponding or somewhere in the middle or in the in the first three. The order of authorship does not matter to you. As long as your name is on that paper, it is your paper. And that has been my experience of working with you. How do you do that? Like, what's the what's the secret? What's the mantra? What's the sauce? Well, I don't know, you know, if there's any secret. So I guess I'd say, first of all, you know, the goal isn't just, you know, to publish a bunch of papers. It's, it's sort of like, you know, procedures. The goal is not just to do a bunch of procedures. I mean, the goal is to do really good work. Uh, and in the case of publications, work that's really impactful. And I think, you know, the journal that it's in matters to an extent, but that's not the most important thing either. You know, in the end, it's does that paper in some way you know, improve human health? Does it help physicians provide better care? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then, you know, it doesn't really matter to me what journal it got in. But in any circumstance, it does matter that, you know, it's a good piece of work, that it actually is, is serving those larger goals. And I think that's really what when people are publishing, they should keep in mind, does this work, you know, have the potential to actually make an impact in some way? And uh, if the answer is yes, it's worth pursuing. And if the answer is maybe, then it's worth trying to make that maybe into a yes and, and make it into a better, more impactful paper. Um, so it, it really isn't a goal of, you know, quantity. It, it really is a goal of uh, uh, quality. But, uh, you know, I, I have been fortunate to have collaborated with lots of terrific people. I think that's key as well. You know, not every offer for collaboration should necessarily result in a yes. I try to collaborate with people, you know, that have a really good work ethic, uh, that are just, you know, sort of honest moral people that are, um, you know, writing things uh, honestly and, and from a good place and uh, trying to advance uh, the science and medicine. 
And, uh, you know, if it's someone that fits that uh, description, then, you know, generally speaking, I'm happy to work with a diverse uh, set of types of people in terms of uh, backgrounds or, or philosophies. But, uh, but they really, in my book, have to meet those particular criteria. And then it's, first of all, you know, fun to do in addition to just hopefully serving some larger uh, uh, humanitarian purpose. You know, hopefully it's just fun. It's, it's actually unfolding. I mean, you and I've written quite a bit and I've always enjoyed it because, you know, you're an engaged writer. Uh, you seem to really enjoy it. You also share a sense of purpose of trying to make uh, the world a better place, not just doing things to do things. Uh, or just for the purposes of, of CV enhancement. So, you know, I think uh, it really helps having collaborators, in this case, co-authors that share that type of mindset. And then it just makes it, you know, in intrinsically worthwhile, even if it ends up being something that isn't the highest impact. At least if you had some fun along the way and learned something, well, then, you know, everybody can feel good about it. Yeah, no, you know, excellent, excellent answer. Um... And um, is there is there a particular um, mantra that you follow? Because you know, and, and you know, this is going back to my first question. Because each time I've sent you an email, uh, you know, no matter what the time, I've heard back fairly quickly. Uh, I mean, when I say quickly, I say it's in a matter of hours. Um, and you know, sometimes it, it has been with critical commentary or you know, critical feedback on a manuscript. Um, and I've. You know, we've, I mean, cardiology, academic cardiology is a small world. And, you know, we, we all sort of end up knowing each other, uh, you know, through uh, meetings and emails and not Twitter and, and Clubhouse, what have you. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sentiment that has been shared by me about you from, from virtually everyone that, I've, that, that, that has had the opportunity to work with you, to write with you. Um, and, you know, like I said, I mean, you've, you've several collab collaborators. So, um, I think from a, from a logistical sort of, you know, tips perspective, you know, for someone who's listening, who, who needs to garner tips from you as to how to organize yourself and, or how to position yourself to be able to, uh, to, to do the quality work, uh, and, and do, do all of it so well. What is, what, what are some of the, housekeeping um you know rules that you follow for uh, for you know doing everything that you do and I, I think part of it you answered when you answered about uh, being focused and being mindful but you know is there anything else sure well i think you know it's important to sort of prioritize what you want to do in life and what's important and that would span both personal and professional domains because it's hard to excel at everything uh, all at once uh, in life. Uh, few people can really do that if they're being honest with themselves. But uh, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily a great role model for that. I, I must say I never said uh, no to anything people asked me to do in terms of you know uh, work, whether it was clinical work or, or academic work, uh, probably until I was a full professor. I mean, until then, I don't think I literally ever said no to anything. In terms of, can you see this patient? Can you do this extra rotation clinically? Can you review this journal article? Can you contribute this book chapter? Can you help co-author or write this paper? Can you take on, you know, this site investigator role? Can you do some research? I mean, I, I don't think I ever said no to any of that. But probably once I became full professor, it was maybe the first time. And not because I became full professor, but just I'm just saying at a later stage and age in life, I 
I did. But if I had to just do that over again, I might have said no to more things, you know, earlier on in life because some of those things that I ended up saying yes to, I think, were relatively uh, low value. And it might have been better just uh, doing other uh, things in either professional or personal life. So I think that, um, I think that, uh, I'm not necessarily the best role model for how to do that, but uh, I, I would say that you know people need to weigh honestly with themselves what is very important to them and devote time to those things. Sometimes that just happens naturally. If we really like to do things, we spend more time on it. But you know, it, it can be challenging if you're a busy physician, in particular. You know, that can just take up the whole day, right? And and uh, take all your energy. Um, but if there are things you want to do beyond clinical care, and let me say there's nothing wrong with focusing solely on clinical care, uh, that's essentially why most of us went into medicine in the first place to take care of patients. But but for people that are wanting to do other things, um, you know, then it's, I, I believe, important to prioritize what those other things are, whether it's things like writing papers, as we were just discussing, or hobbies that have nothing to do with medicine. But it is important to figure out what those things are because you probably can't, you know, just do everything. That is, you can't have a hundred hobbies and do a hundred other things outside the practice of clinical medicine and, and do them all well, at least. Um, so, you know, there is some need to prioritize and, you know, say no to some things and consciously decide, okay, I'm not going to do that thing, even though I thought it might have been kind of interesting to do. So I'm not sure that's so helpful an answer, but, but I think sometimes, you know, uh, especially young physicians are, are their worst critic. That is, they're really hard on themselves thinking, oh, I should have been doing this. I should have been doing that and I'm not. And I think part of that might be, you know, that the majority of folks at some point have trained at academic centers and we sort of inculcate in, in medical students and especially residents and even more so fellows, you know, that they're a failure if they're not just academically productive. And I think that's really unfortunate because, you know, being academically productive by that, I mean, researching and writing about it, you know, that's not for everybody. Uh, you know, there's not always opportunities, even for everyone that's, you know, potentially interested. And as I said a couple of minutes ago, I mean, most of us initially went into medicine to take care of patients. It's, you know, still a noble calling. And if that's what somebody's doing 100% of their work time, that's fine. You know, that's something to be proud of. Uh, but for people that do want to do other things, whether it's writing papers or, you know, hosting podcasts like you are, or just doing, you know, other um, sort of uh, professional uh, or, or, or personal or hobby type things in life, well, got to carve out the time and energy to do that. Um, yes, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, and I think this sort of came up um, when we were having a conversation, I think a few weeks ago on Clubhouse, uh, that there is nothing wrong. We're doing 100%, you know, clinical medicine, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, we went into medicine to, to, to become physicians who can be good, who are good at taking care of, of patients. Um, you know, but I, I, I think for, for those who, um, who find a calling in, um, you know, in, for example, clinical investigation, and, and writing manuscripts to disseminate science um, with the purpose that, you know, like you said, uh, you know, earlier in the show that, uh, you know, what you write may have um, an effect on how someone is managing a patient, you know, 7,000 miles away. 
um, you know, then you've sort of affected the care of that particular individual without having even seen that person or that individual. And, you know, at least that's how I think of research. And I'm sure that's how you think of research because of the, of the kind and quality and magnitude of, of clinical investigation that you've, you've pioneered and, uh, you know, you've led. Um, when, so, so as a, the follow-up question to this comment, Dr. Bhatt, is um, was that something that, that was a calling for you as you were going through training or was that a conscious decision that came up when you were early career? Because you spent, um, you know, you, you spent a lot of time at the Cleveland Clinic um, and what was sort of the evolutionary process for you from being a cardiovascular disease fellow um, to an early career attending, um, you know, who also took on, uh, you know, roles in, in medical education and being the associate program director. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe you were the associate program director for the cardiovascular disease fellowship and the program director for the interventional fellowship, um, you know, before you moved to, to, the, uh, to the West Roxbury VA in Boston. When, when did this transition or evolution happen for you? I, no, you're right. I mean, I, I was fortunate to really hold those uh, terrific educational roles while at Cleveland Clinic for several years. And, um, you know, I, I got a lot out of it myself, uh, getting to interact with uh, fellows, learned a lot about myself, grew as a person and as an educator, I believe, uh, and, and hopefully helped some uh, fellows and residents along the way. Uh, there's a lot to be said for being in those sorts of positions. And um, I think it leads to lots of, of personal growth. It is true, I think, anytime we're in the role of educator or mentor, hopefully we're helping the person or people that we're assigned to and supposed to. But, but I think just for ourselves, we, we really grow and learn a lot. And, uh, you know, those were really, uh, for me, fantastic times and experiences. I really loved my time at Cleveland Clinic. In terms of being a researcher or, or that aspect of my life, uh, it certainly was fostered at Cleveland Clinic. I mean, Cleveland Clinic, as you know, being there yourself now, uh, clinical excellence is paramount, right? Everybody there, you just got to be a great uh, clinician and if you're a proceduralist, a great proceduralist, uh, you know, that comes first. Uh, patient care comes first and, and academic pursuits uh, typically come after that. And, um, uh, so, you know, not everyone that's there is uh, doing uh, research, of course, and I think that's okay. I mean, that's where I learned uh, to value different sorts of skill sets. That is, there are some folks that are full-time physicians, and I, you, you know these people. I think they're providing literally world-class care. That's important. In fact, nothing's more important for that patient and their family members and, and even their referring physician. So... Um, once more, that's a very noble undertaking. Uh, I love that aspect of things. I love being, you know, um, uh, trained as, and in fact, uh, functioning as, as really a top-notch clinician and, and proceduralist. Uh, I also like the research aspect and thought of it, at least in my brain, as complementary uh, because it provides an opportunity. I think this is what you were alluding to, to helping not just the patient in front of you, but potentially hundreds or thousands or even millions or tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of patients. So that is, to me, just along the continuum of, of being a physician. 
and uh, the uh, opportunity of improving health, but uh, perhaps on a, a larger scale. And, and I won't say that it's more important because, again, it, it all is uh, starting with the individual to that individual patient in your office or in your cath lab or in your OR suite. I mean, that to them is an extremely important moment in time, and that can never be underestimated. And I think the physician's role, and in fact, the whole healthcare team's role in those episodes in a patient's life can never be uh, overstated. But when I saw you know, large randomized clinical trials ongoing, I, at least again in my head, thought this is a way you know, I can potentially influence the care, hopefully favorably, uh, for people all around the world, including patients that I'll never directly see or touch. My interest on research started even before that stage. My interest in clinical trials perhaps uh, crystallized well uh, early on at Cleveland Clinic, but you know, even before that, I'd been involved with clinical research. I'd done a lot of hypertension research when I was at the Cornell Hypertension Center, for example, with uh, you know real giants in the field of, of, of hypertension like Dr. Devereaux and Dr. Pickering where we were looking at blood pressure and effects on left ventricular remodeling. And, and you know, before that, I actually thought I might be a basic researcher and spent a fair amount of time doing basic research with some of the top people uh, in the field, uh, really, um, including, you know, folks that were uh, at that absolute top level of Nobel laureate or Nobel laureate contenders and um, really enjoyed it. I, I, I I think it's important, though, again, in all stages of life, people have to be honest with themselves. And I was very honest with myself. And I thought, wow, this is really great work. I love the people I'm working with. Uh, but I did note, you know, that they were, uh, many of them, if not all of them, you know, very, very passionate about the science for science's sake. And in fact, Dr. Robert Weinberg, who, you know, discovered the first oncogene, who was my uh, undergraduate advisor at MIT, you know, when I was just asking him in one of those nice sort of uh, advisor, uh, advisee sort of uh, conversations, just uh, throwing random questions at him about uh, work and life and so forth, you know, I, I asked him what motivated him. And, you know, he said it was just the pure joy of science and uh, the beauty of it and the elegance of science. And he didn't really care if what he was doing, you know, materialized into a therapeutic that was used in humans or not. He said it'd be nice if it happened, but he would be no less satisfied if it didn't, uh, because, again, he was doing it just for the intrinsic uh, uh, you know, beauty of science. And, and I thought that was an honest answer. I thought it was a beautiful answer. But I realized that wasn't me. That is, if I spent 50 years of my life, you know, working in a lab and doing great science, publishing in the top journals, but it didn't actually amount to anything that influenced human health, didn't turn into a drug or a device or strategy that would actually be useful for humans with disease that it would have, in my mind, not been a useful career that I had. So, you know, it was really with that uh, realization, that self-realization that I pivoted from, you know, perhaps uh, otherwise having been a basic cancer researcher uh, to being a physician and clinical researcher. Yeah, no, excellent answer. I think, um, uh, you know, I'm you know, as as they say, I think if um, um, I think you know to 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 know yourself and and to accept yourself is 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 the is the greatest accomplishment one can one can have or achieve. Um, 
and it you know it it could take time i mean i and you know it's 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 great that it it came so early for you uh, you know for me um I, I i didn't even know i would enjoy research that much i think when i when i came in it was sort of a necessity to be competitive for cardiovascular disease fellowships you know being a foreign graduate and you know i stumbled upon it out of necessity not because i i thought that i would ever enjoy it and you know now i it's it's something which is you know it's part of my dna i i have to do it or else i i do not feel fulfilled uh but you know i think I mean, it's a great great learning point uh lots of great learning points in that answer from you um so, so as a follow up to that question who who do you think has has influenced your your thought process the most i mean of all the luminaries that you've worked with you know both in basic science and in clinical medicine who has been uh, the biggest influence for you like when when you were when you were early career like like me and a lot of us were listening who was it that you were looking up to to that okay he's the he or she is the kind of person i want to be well, that's really a great uh, question. And, you know, I've been lucky. I've had really uh, terrific mentors, you know, along the way at every stage. Um, you know, I mean, I really, even going back to high school, I've got to say I had some really terrific teachers who I felt uh, really cared about me, they cared about all the students who were really uh, devoted to making us uh, better students, but also just better human beings. And, um, uh, you know, same thing in college. I was really lucky. I mentioned, you know, to work with people at the Nobel laureate caliber, but even a bunch of folks that uh, never won a Nobel laureate deserved it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I didn't win it, but um, it just, uh, you know, uh, really a lot that I learned, um, you know, and, and gained from those sorts of relationships. Uh, you know, same thing in medical school. Again, I mentioned, you know, one of them, Dr. Devereaux, uh, who I did research with, and you know, I, I I didn't appreciate it at the time, but um, <laughs> you know, I the, the first paper I wrote with him it was just so bad. I mean, he essentially had to you know rewrite most of it, and he was so patient with it. And at the end, you know, made it seem like I'd written this really great paper, but in fact, he'd really written it. I just you know put together a, a bad skeleton and outline and. Uh, a lot of words that needed to be replaced with red ink. Of course, that predated, you know, people editing things with the uh, track changes on Microsoft Word. It was always, you know, red, uh, wet ink, but, uh, it was just so, you know, patient and good and just taught me so much about clinical research and the scientific method. And that really got me, uh, uh sort of infected with the bug of doing clinical research. Really it was from that point forward. I thought, okay, I want to have clinical research be part of what I do. Um, and it was really then that I pivoted from doing basic research and I'd done more basic research, not just at the college stage of my career, but even at the medical school uh, stage of things. And I should say I did enjoy all that basic science and I think it was worthwhile having done it. I just, even now, there was a lot of scientific rigor, uh, that I gained by working in basic science labs and just a lot of knowledge that ended up being useful for, for subsequent uh, research and, and drug and device development. But, Certainly, Dr. Devereaux, I think, in medical school, you know, taught me uh, a lot uh, about um, how to be not just a great doctor, but to also balance that with doing a great clinical research. And, you know, then I, I was lucky at Penn and in, 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 in residency to have lots of great mentors. It was such a terrific place, was, and is such a terrific place for mentorship. 
but you know there were uh, folks um, that really got me uh, interested in not just cardiology but interventional cardiology you know folks uh, names that uh, will be familiar to you like dr howie herman and dr john hirschfeld that were just so encouraging about going into cardiology and, and even interventional cardiology which i thought i might go into because i really liked acute coronary syndromes and mi and taking care of those types of patients and uh, again, I just learned so much from them about uh, not just clinical medicine, that for sure, but just having a good bedside manner and thinking about, you know, things like that. And, you know, likewise, when I was at Cleveland Clinic, it's just, uh, you know, in interventional cardiology, a lot of giants there, uh, names that you would have heard of, of course, and other names you may not have heard of that were just superb operators and doctors and just well-rounded clinicians, even if they were interventionalists where they knew a lot of internal medicine and a lot of general cardiology and were proud of that fact. And But, you know, there were also, beyond the interventionalists, I mean, I actually learned a lot of things unrelated to intervention in cardiology. When I was there, I worked a lot with the heart failure folks, folks like, you know, Dr. Jim Young, who was my chair of medicine there for many years, learned a lot about not just heart failure from that too, for sure, but also just about uh, leadership and, uh, you know, how to uh, run sections or departments or things like that. And, you know, I mean, even though I uh, was quite focused uh, for, for a good chunk of my time there on interventional cardiology, really lots of great interactions with the heart failure group. You know, other folks there too, like Dr. Randy Starling, really great teachers, really caring uh, teachers and mentors. And preventive cardiology too. I mean, I had a great love for preventive cardiology uh, and, and, and much of it just started there. It was just a great preventive cardiology group, really friendly folks, really passionate about uh, that field. Uh, in a hospital that was, you know, somewhat procedurally focused and, you know, focused on things uh, that were, you know, RVU generators and preventive cardiology uh, never really was that, but still they were just so devoted to the field and, and, and to trying to prevent events, ischemic events in patients. Um, so, uh, you know, lots of great mentors. And then, you know, moving to Boston, it, it was terrific. I mean, you mentioned you know, my time at VA Boston and, you know, being chief of cardiology there, I thought was a really fun thing to do, leave an imprint, not just on an institution, but it gave me an opportunity to interact with medical students and house officers from throughout the city. I mean, my appointment was through Brigham and Women's and Harvard Medical School, but there were, you know, Beth Israel residents rotating through. There were, you know, BU medical students rotating through. Uh, there were, of course, Brigham and MGH uh, house officers rotating through. So it was an opportunity to work with lots of different people from lots of different institutions from throughout Boston. So just a really wonderful experience. And, you know, my, my chair of medicine there, Dr. Paul Conlon, such a nice guy, such a great example of leadership, uh, such a supportive uh, person. Uh, everyone should be so fortunate to have a chair like that. And, you know, I, on the Brigham side of things, too, I was really lucky. I mean, uh, you know, getting to work with Dr. Brownwald, of course, many people from around the world dream of that sort of opportunity. But, um, you know, to really uh, get to work with him uh, so closely. It's really been a privilege and taught me a lot about not just clinical trials, that obviously, but just, again, about leadership and, and how to be a good mentor and, and, you know, how to try to leave a, a meaningful and enduring mark and legacy in a particular field, uh, you know, such as cardiovascular medicine. 
and, and obviously, you know, having the opportunity to work with folks like Dr. Libby, really, um, you know, one of the premier physician scientists in the world, not just in cardiovascular medicine, but just uh, even beyond that, just um, just a privilege being able to work with and, and learn from folks like that. So, you know, I've been really fortunate uh, every place I've been just to be surrounded by talented people, caring people, uh, people that really value mentorship. But, you know, part of it, uh, since it just... Uh, there, there's a wide variety of folks I imagine that listen to your podcast, and part of it is also seeking out the right mentors wherever you happen to be. You know, those things don't always occur uh, naturally or accidentally. I mean, sometimes it does take effort, and uh, you know, uh, I think regardless of where one is, there's always at least somebody you can find that will be a caring individual that, even if they can't directly uh, steer you on the right path, can connect you with others that will. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, your your career has has just been exemplary, and uh, you know, um, for for many and for so many of us. I mean, I think all over the world, we just look up to you, and and the fact that you, um, I mean, there's a reason you got the distinguished mentor award from the American College of Cardiology, and you know what I was uh, what I was going to say was that uh, despite having been, you know, so accomplished. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I know of any other cardiologist who has more New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet papers than you. Um, you know, despite all of what you've achieved and accomplished, uh, you know, the just the, you, you know, how approachable you are and the humility is is something to aspire for. And um, I, I don't I don't know how you do that. I, I really it's 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 a huge compliment from me. But, you know, maybe if you want to share your secret of humility, I think everybody could. Uh, could could learn from you, you know, about humility. Oh, well, that's really kind of you to say. I mean, I, there are folks in cardiovascular medicine that are far more accomplished than me. I mean, Dr. Brownwald, obviously, Dr. Youssef, you know, so I wouldn't uh, overstate uh, my uh, stature, though that's extremely kind of you. But, um, you know, in, in terms of humility, I think that's a really important trait that every physician should have. Uh, every scientist as well, and certainly every physician scientist, uh, because, you know, medicine's really humbling. I mean, you think you understand a patient's disease trajectory or what's going on uh, in their care, in their case, in their procedure. Next thing you know, uh, something totally unexpected, uh, sometimes uh, unexpected and bad happens. And it just teaches you really don't know as much as you thought you did. Um, yeah, so I think the best physicians always keep that mindset and are humbled, always realize that there are people that know more than them uh, in their field and certainly outside their field, but even in their field, uh, realize that that person you know, doesn't necessarily always have to have fancy degrees or uh, a fancy pedigree behind them, realize that person could be younger, not just older. So I think it's important for physicians to always, you know, keep that mindset um, and, and, and never lose that, no matter, you know, how accomplished uh, the p- person, how fancy the titles, how, how long the CV, and that fundamental never changes. But the same philosophy really should apply to scientists, whether they're basic scientists or clinical researchers, where, again, you know, we think we understand something, but then, you know, someone else does an experiment and we learn, okay, maybe we didn't know as much as we thought we did. So I, I think there as well, humility is uh, always a good approach 
And if you don't sort of adopt it proactively, it'll be forced upon you by, by life or by your children or by other things. So it, it, it is um, you know, best to, to try to maintain uh, an attitude of, uh, of being humble. Um, yeah, excellent. So, Dr. Bhatt, th- this may be a tough question for you because you, you just have had so many, um, you know, like groundbreaking manuscripts and, and publications in, in clinical investigation. And sort of um, maybe my penultimate question to to round up in what has been a terrific discussion. It always is you know, for me to, you know, touch base with you and, and learn so much from you. Give me your top three manuscripts. Now, you know, it, this may be a hard one to pick because you, you have over 1,600 as of a few hours ago. <laughs> but, you know, if I were to ask your top three picks, what would, what would those three be? Oh, that's a really tough question. You know, sometimes people ask Dr. Bronwell, what was your favorite clinical trial? Uh, or, or sometimes even what was your favorite paper? And, um, you know, whenever he's asked that question, and I've heard a number of people asking that question about trials, sometimes it's people he's worked with, and I think they're secretly hoping that he picks their trial. But, but you know, he answers it this way, and he says, you know, his trials were like his children, uh, obviously not like the real children. He has real children and, and obviously values them more than a trial. But, but metaphorically speaking, you know, they're like his academic children, his progeny, uh, his intellectual uh, offspring, and they're you really can't pick a favorite, right? I mean, you know, for people that have children that are listening, you, you know, you really love all your children equally and um, you really don't have one that's favorite. Uh, and uh, I think it's the same way with trials and I'll say the same way with papers. I don't know they can just say a favorite just because something was published, you know, in a high tier journal that doesn't de facto make it uh, you know, my uh, favorite one. You know, every paper I've worked with, I worked on rather, I've, I've enjoyed. And, you know, I think uh, assuming that it makes a meaningful contribution, I'd say I'm proud of. So I don't know that I can just pick one or, or two or three or 10 and say, oh, those are the ones, you know, that I really uh, find um, most, uh, you know, uh, impactful or important. Um, I, I think everything that I've worked with in, in terms of papers and trials, I value equally. And you never really know when you're doing something uh, where it'll end up. You know, one thing, a paper I worked with, this is some years ago with um, uh, Tony Bavery and Dharam Kabani, who themselves now are quite accomplished uh, academicians in the world of cardiology. Is You know, we put together uh, the first uh, meta-analysis that showed that there was an increased risk of stent thrombosis with of late and very late stent thrombosis with the first generation drug eluting stents versus bare metal stents. At the time, I've got to say, you know, it was met with just uh, a lot of uh, uh, anger, I think. You know, interventional cardiologists certainly didn't want to hear that message. Uh, But, you know, it's what we thought the data showed in our meta-analysis. And subsequently, of course, it was borne out to be true that there was a small but real increased risk that, you know, fortunately, the second and third generation DS have overcome. But, you know, we submitted that paper to all the usual suspects in terms of tier one medical journals. They all rejected it, uh, you know, to sort of the top cardiology journals. They all rejected it. And, you know, ultimately, we submitted to American Journal of Medicine and, um, you know, the very, uh, I'd say, knowledgeable and savvy uh, editor there did accept it uh, without too much of a fuss. It ended up, you know, becoming one of the most highly cited papers at that journal. Uh, and, um, you know, that taught me that, again, it's not really the journal 
impact factor that matters the most. It really is the work, it's quality, it's impact, it's durability over time, it's ability you know, to be replicated and confirmed that it, it, it leads to it, its, its lasting significance. So, uh, you know, that's just a concrete example of a paper that I was really proud of. It didn't end up, you know, in an absolute tier one journal, but I think it ended up, you know, influencing the field. Um, terrific. Um, well, Dr. Butt, um, any closing remarks and um, for, the, for the podcast and for the listeners? Well, I think, you know, ultimately life is about relationships and we primarily talked about work uh, relationships, but, you know, it, it's important, I think, trying to foster relationships that are fulfilling ones. And, and when you're working with people, you know, you really want to work with people you like and where feels good and, you know, you feel uh, like it's uh, something meaningful and, you know, hopefully something that's lasting. I mean, I mentioned that last paper, that the one other aspect of that paper that was really terrific is, you know, I, two of the folks involved with it uh, went on to have stellar academic careers, not because of that paper, but, but um, you know, that that's just part of the whole uh, process of, uh, you know, academic life and mentorship and, and trying to pass it on to the next generation. And, you know, it, to, to me, this has really been a great and meaningful uh, interview by you because, you know, I, I really um, take a lot of uh, pleasure in seeing how well you've done in your academic uh, life. And it is, I think, a terrific example of uh, how relationships really matter. I mean, you know, we've had this sort of uh, academic relationship that spanned multiple institutions now for you know several years. And, you know, that makes academic life, and I'll just say life in general, more fun and more fulfilling. It's those sort of you know, enduring relationships uh, that uh, make uh, things that otherwise may not have as much meaning, you know, have uh, some real significance and impact on our lives. So thank you so much uh, for this interview. I, I hope uh, your audience finds it interesting. I, I've sort of just been uh, rambling on about uh, random aspects of uh, life, but uh, but hopefully there's some pearls of wisdom buried in there. No, this has been this has been phenomenal, and thank you so much for you know your time and your wisdom. And um, I, I couldn't agree with you more that it's it's at the end it's all about relationships. And uh, you know you're one person who's always been my go-to person whenever I found myself in adversity, pain, or trouble. So thank you for thank you for being uh, you know my wall, and thank you for being my support. And I look forward to cherishing this relationship that I have with you for a long, long time. Thanks, Doctor Bot. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.